0: Out of the 93 Best Picture winners, one must be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast for us four Backlog boys, my name is Timo, and I'm joined by Abram, Tucker, and Tanner are talking about every single Best Picture winner In random order, that's the shtick of The Quest for the Bestest. We are on a hunt, a voyage, a discovering trek to find the very best Best Picture winner of all time. And today, our newest entry in, you know, the films. This franchise. In the franchise of The Quest for the Bestest is Frank Capra's It Happened One Night from 1934. A classic movie, real golden age Hollywood stuff from way back in the olden days but before we talk about that, and I think we've got some stuff to talk about, I want to review a little bit and uh, and talk about what we did last week, because, oh boy, we talked about James Cameron's gigantic movie. Maybe you might even call it Titanic. That's right. We talked about the Titanic movie, and I'm never going to let the boat puns it did it, about boys. that movie stop. Um, <laughs> it, it did not sink as I prophesized, maybe that it would at the beginning of the episode. In fact, it rose almost all the way to the top, just a couple shy. In fact, at place number three, The Titanic Lord. is one of the highest scoring movies we've ever talked about with an average score of 9.5, and we decided that it even beat out both Godfather films. Maybe an attempt to keep them together, maybe because we like it better. You'll have to watch the episode to find out our true thoughts, though. I highly recommend it. It's a good one. might be long, but so is that movie. So I think all things measure out in the end. Now, I do have a question. Have we received any featured comments this week? Do we want to Uh check that out? We have
1: unfortunately received zero comments on the Titanic video, mostly because our our recording schedule has been so uh, wibbly-wobbly that uh, we're recording it um, not in short order after that video came out. So...
0: Well, that's all right. We will get to them next week. Gives you no more. Fault of, no
1: fault but our own.
0: Yeah, sadly. True. This is but true. That gives you all more time to comment and we will see it because we got even more stuff to look through. Hopefully, interesting, interesting stuff will arise from those oh so many internet commenters. But first, well, not but first, I think, but finally, we get to talk about Frank Capra's It Happened One Night. So, who wants to lead off with. Maybe a little plot description, or we could just jump right into the thoughts. I don't know. It's up to you guys.
1: I think we typically do uh, the person who's seen it the most times talks. It gives a little intro. So, Tucker Hazel, would you like to take oh, the lead?
2: Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, first off, am I the only one who's seen this before?
1: Yeah. Y- yesterday,
2: presumably, is when we I all watched so. <laughs> it. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I watched this about a year ago when I was really start—no, no, more than that, because it was before we started Quest— Um, when I was just getting into watching Best Picture winners and I had an inkling in the back of my head of what if I reviewed all the Best Picture winners? Mm. You know, the couple of boys, maybe random order. Quest was but a seed in the back of my Mm. mind when I watched this film the first time. A twinkle in your eye. But but a twinkle in my eye. Uh, Uh And I encountered this movie at the perfect time in my life, which was getting into film history and this sort of classic era of screwball comedies and that stuff. And I don't even know if I knew it won Best Picture at that point in time. I, I totally might have. But this film uh, is not particularly important to me, but it is one that I have a lot of excitement for because I think it represents in the uh, Best Picture lineup that genre of classic screwball romantic comedies from from Hawks, from Capra, from Wilder, all these guys... Uh, who did these sort of similar movies, this gets a a representation slot uh, in the Best Picture lineup. So I'm very excited to talk about it from that lens because I'm a very big fan of that genre. But what this movie is really about is two unlikely individuals who are high-strung and crazy personalities pushed together on a road trip cross-country to get from one place to the other. you got Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable, and uh, Claudette Colbert's character, who I actually don't... Oh, Ellie something. Ellie... Ellen Andrews. Andrews, Andrews thank you. Ellie Andrews. Uh, put on a bus together, uh, Ellie Andrews is a the daughter of sort of a Wall Street mogul, uh, and she wants to get back to her new husband, uh, who are about to be husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, much to the chagrin of her father, so she escapes, and Peter Ward has to help her along, because she is so spoiled and disconnected from his society, she doesn't know how to function within the the moral landscape of American culture Uh, and that becomes their journey to get from Florida to New York and eventually end with reuniting her with her, uh, her soon to be husband. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the plot synopsis that you need to know. And you've, you've got a, you've got a stinkle in your eye and I really want to know (laughs) what this means for you.
3: Um, well, I, I, I like that a lot. I like that description. I think it's perhaps apt because I found this movie to be incredibly boring. What, Stinkle? Uh, yes. I, <laughs> I really I really did not enjoy this film particularly. Uh, again, I, I come into this show with little care about the history and the context of the release, not because I don't care about the process of its evolution, but because I don't study it the way you guys do. I come... I come very much with a modern lens to a lot of these these classical era films. And sometimes it results in something I really like, you know, whether that's for this show, or I'm also a big fan of things like Bicycle Thieves and Breathless, the, the, the great 30s, 40s films that I appreciate. But for me, this really wasn't one of them. I didn't really care about the characters at all, and for me that that felt like it was at the heart of my disconnect from the film. And I want to get into this, but I just don't think that these characters are set up and their relationship is paid off in a way that evokes any tension for me or any real drive to see one or the other th- succeed, because we've got a great concept here, but mm-hmm. it kind of ends at the concept for me.
1: Sure, okay. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't exactly come at this or maybe any of the other classic Hollywood films that we've seen knowing a lot about them, but uh, I, I, I I think there is still some modern enjoyment to be found in It Happened One Night. I think this is still a genuinely funny movie, you know some almost 100 years some 90 years later and um i i was i was thoroughly uh, entertained throughout most of this i like frank capra or not frank well i do like frank capra actually yeah. but i like clark gable <laughs> well. as well I like uh, Claudette Colbert. I think they make a very good a comedic duo throughout. I think some of the writing is very sharp and witty and on point. Uh, the delivery is all there from our actors. The, mo- the movie moves at quite a bit of a clip. but knows when to you know, pump the brakes a little bit, give us a little bit of classic Hollywood romance. But I do think it's sort of a, it maybe hits the brakes too hard and maybe goes off the rails in terms of interest towards the end of the film. But I'm sure we'll get to it
0: hmm well i'm gonna synthesize both abram and tanner's thoughts into my own thoughts because i think that, that i'm, I'm kind of mid on this film i find that yeah i actually i really like when um clark abel and claudette what was her last name again colbert. colbert claudette colbert when they're together on screen it might be
2: colbert i might be getting stephen colbert stuck in my head i actually i actually don't know the specific pronunciation but going off of Stephen, uh, mm. he's a he's a Colbert. It's Colbert. We'll it's say Colbert. Colbert.
0: Yeah, um, I like when they're together on screen. I think they have good chemistry, and I find that their their dialogue it w- was the stuff that was humoring me. But this is a film that I actually would have probably rather seen in a theater as part of like a special screening mm. or something, because mm. um, I feel like I missed out on a lot of the a lot of what makes it like actually very funny when it's just me watching it, and I'm like, oh, haha, hmm. That, that, that's funny. <laughs> oh, <haha. laughs> as opposed to like being in a theater when when you get one of those lines and like other people laugh and you're like oh huh? like you actually laugh. Um, sure, yeah. And so you know I, I found myself kind of just being strung along for the first half of the film and then in an opposite way of Tanner, I got more interested as the film developed oh, in the second half. Um, but I don't find a huge amount of the rest of it besides from our characters and our central conceit to be what really drew me in. Um, I think the acting is is pretty great all around, but there isn't. It doesn't reach out and grab me or put me in a stranglehold like some of these other films that we've seen. Though
1: mm-hmm.
0: your balls have been left ungrabbed, yeah. probably, probably so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you well, know, maybe it, maybe it did benefit the you know, the comedy from me and Tucker watching it together. You know, we 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 shared a hearty chuckle together at some a lot of these jokes. I, I, like, the two
2: of us are a catalyst I mean, for each other
1: laughing more often yeah, yeah.
2: than than we aren't. Like every, every yeah. day, there's. One guy makes a joke, the other guy makes a joke. Way well,
1: hey, it, it Unlike, spirals uh, outward. Timon and Abram, who sit uh, huddled away in a corner watching classic Hollywood films that we Sil- silently request uh, in so my room. Like this, we
2: sit. We sit on the couch together, holding hands. Oh, I
1: see. <laughs> Abram sits like that, throughout the entire
2: and
0: thing. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm completely hunched over in front of my computer mm-hmm. screen in a darkened room that I haven't left for hours. Yeah,
3: I will sure. say to this point, I did not find the movie funny. Um, really? But that is, yes. That is a very subjective thing. I don't find this type of screwball comedy to be funny. That's not a knock against the film. I think it is a very witty film, but for me, I did not find the actual humor to hold mm. up that much. But there, okay. there are scenes of great wit. I think the scene that spoke to me the most and perhaps when I found the most enjoyment in this film is when... Um, is when Clark Gable takes, what's his, what, what's his name, Mr. Shapley aside? Shapely, yeah, yeah. Mr. Shapley is going to reveal, because a part of the conceit that Tucker didn't mention is that the reason Clark Gable wants to escort her is so he can write the story about her trip across trip. the country. Yes, it's an because, part and I should have uh, Because he is a newspaper man, and I want to get into that, because it, that element of the film kind of left me feeling unfulfilled. But in mm-hmm. this moment, when it feels like his his big payday, his big scoop is about to be revealed because there's, you know, like a, a bounty out to return uh, Claudette. He, he pretends he's in the mob to get this guy shapely off, and it was at that <laughs> moment when the, the, the wittiness of the script and the charisma of particularly his performance really did strike me, but on the whole... I just I was like, yeah, this is a clever script, but I was certainly not, you know, you, you know, having my
1: sides hurt with with with, with comedy. Your sides split, I believe. Well, later. Abram, I think you're a real gas house palooka for not thinking this film is very funny.
2: <laughs> no, but I yeah, I honestly do disagree. And of course, that is very subjective. But I I take that energy from that scene, which I think is. Probably the funniest part of the movie to Tanner and I, we were laughing mm-hmm. our butts off in that scene. Holy shit, <laughs> it's so funny! Uh, but I can I can take that energy and apply it to most of the comedy that I think hits throughout this film. I think you look back to the sequence of the two of them pretending to be man and wife to sort of oh put the detectives off. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny! That the, the uh, sequence where he's teaching her how to uh, how to hail a car for, as a hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Like there's such a charm to the way these characters move and interact with each other that I think there's just that twinkle, that spark that gives this film the comedic energy that while it might not be side-splittingly funny, it's so charmingly funny. Sure. And, I, and I really find that to hit home with me, especially in a time where this is a Depression-era movie and it reflects that in a lot of the, the themes and locations and uh, characters that they meet. But I think also that sort of just... Lightly, sort of dryly funny comedy Is what was really uh, hitting back then And I I still think it holds up quite a bit Especially as a reflection of its time Yeah, yeah I, I think, think you have to
3: I think you have to buy into The, the, the conventions of the time a lot mm. And I just don't think that I do Because I, it's very interesting hearing Particularly you talk about it, Tucker As someone who loves that golden age of Hollywood And me as someone who feels No real connection to it I, I totally get the the charm and, and the endearing texture of of the movie, and I certainly see that. But it's just on the mo- on the most subjective level, it's not something I hold against the film. But on the most subjective level, that's not the sort of humor that speaks to me. I, I guess it's like when I talk about an old game like Ninja Gaiden, and most people who don't care about classic games look at it and they're like, "Why the hell would you like this?" Right? Mm-hmm. I think I think you have to at a certain point, especially when we talk about these older films be engaged in the idea of understanding that landscape and i just don't necessarily think for me this film inherently made me want to and so some of the stuff that i view just as witty or clever i think that if you care more about the gold major of hollywood it's gonna mean more to you than it did to me
0: yeah, I mean, I found the film in general to be sequences of, of good situational comedy like Tucker was saying with The Hitchhiker. I thought that was probably my favorite sequence in the whole film. Um, I, I think it's a good character moment as well as being good, like, physical comedy. Um, but for me, a lot of that stems from the performances of the characters, the way that, that, the, that the two leads interact with each other uh, and the situations that they're put in. Uh, you know, I think it's... I feel like I'm like going in between moments of comedy. I'm like, okay, I'm just like watching whatever happens until we get to the next like setup where they're going to like do jokes together. Um, And so I was certainly a lot less concerned with like the plot of the film, which helps with the setups, but is uh, nothing special in my book.
1: Yeah, sure. See, I kind of differ on that from Timo. I think that while the comedy is, I would say, I'd say the comedy is like a nine out of 10 for this movie. Uh, the the plot I would still rate at like a seven or eight. Uh, it, those in between moments where we, like I said at the in my opening statement, get sort of that classic Hollywood romance because it's fun- <laughs> It's it's actually a funny uh story about that because we were, we were, we were going through this movie. I'm like, man, we have gotten like a lot of like romance stuff. We get we got fleeting moments. We got little cutesy, me- uh, cute moments like when they get off the bus for the first time. When they first have to get that room together. Uh, that, that first night that they spent together or when well, they almost kiss under the... When they're sleeping in the hay, they're they're literally hitting the hay there. Uh, and I'm like, oh, man, we haven't gotten a lot of, like, just conversational romantic stuff. And then we get a very good scene in the, that sort of second night when they're staying in some other uh, roadside motel sort of thing. That, uh, I think, opens up the characters quite a bit. Now, these aren't, like, super complex, high-minded characters, but they are... They are crowd pleasing nineteen thirties classical Hollywood characters, and they're good ones because you know the actors pull this off. You have uh, Clark Gable, Peter Warren, who's sort of this down on his luck journalist who sort of has learned to push away people in his life because you know it's really only caused him strife. And then you have Ellie Andrews, who's really never you know had a uh, an actual real life experience in her life because her whole life has been so cultivated as part of the Wall Street elite. And they are good and compelling characters to see uh, come together and sort of talk about their uh, romantic wants and needs.
2: Yeah. I I think that the situation that the characters come from and then are put in together really feed off each other very nicely. You can look at this and you can sort of, and, of course, what we're doing here is comparing it to the best, best picture winners. And I do mm. think that there is a disconnect there because of the time that it was written in, the uh, the genre conventions of writing male characters in a certain way, female characters in a certain way. But I do think that this film does a lot to make these characters pr- surprisingly rich and compelling. And I think a lot of that isn't uh, unveiled until quite a bit of the way through the film. But I think you get glimmers of that throughout. When you look at the way that, uh, that Peter Warren has sort of developed his... Uh, outer shell of witty dialogue and uh uh, and slinging insults and machismo to as sort of a defense because he's so down on his luck and no one really cares about him and all this stuff that he he puts that out forward and it it isn't really his true self and i think there's an interesting conflict there in the character that when you get those moments near the end where he rarely do you see male actors in this time period do this but Unveils like what he his dreams are, and that he really is just like a helpless romantic, and he does care a lot. And these these insults and these misogynistic moments are really just a defense, and I think a sort of exaggeration of what masculine and feminine stereotypes of are in, in the time. This sort, film sort of works as a satire of how ridiculous masculinity and femininity can be when they clash together, and uh, and 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 satirizing the. The, the ridiculous nature of of romance of that time and i think they both fill those roles so well that it makes this really sa- really satisfying to go through and learn about each of these characters as as you sort of unpeel their layers and and learn more about their past and things like that
0: i see where you're coming from tucker but i'm not sure i felt that while i was watching the film i see how you how you apply that reading um afterwards but in like the moment to moments i was m- actually I found myself being much more interested in and concerned with like the class elements that the film brings mm, up sure. with yeah. the, with the idea that the, you have two people who are you know um Claudette is rich stup- stupidly rich and that's like her character thing um in in a situation where she has no money and then where Clark yeah. Gable um, you're probably used to having money as a newspaper guy, and he doesn't have any money either. And so I think that is where like this interesting, there's a couple lines where it's like, well, the family bank accounts run and dry when they're talking about how much mm-hmm. money the both of them have. Um, that was where I was, I guess I was reading probably the most thematic depth out of, the, out of the film as I was watching it. But I do see where you could get the idea about your your gender archetypes being amped up to this degree um, later, I suppose if I watched it again, I would probably be able to pick that out.
2: Yeah. And it I, certainly probably comes from my second viewing of this film and trying to think of it through a lens where I knew it was going to happen. I knew the background of these characters. And I do think with that second watch, you're able to, to peel back those layers a little more easily. And I do think there is a lot of suppressed, but surprising amount of, of thematic value and, and, and criticism of, of gender roles and stereotypes and stuff like that throughout the film as, as it progresses, uh, well, hold on uh yeah because i i do th- see these characters as exaggerations you mm. you might say that they're just simplistic but in the way that they are exaggerated versions of machismo and and frail <laughs> femininity that frail femininity i think works really well especially because both characters are so ludicrously immature and i think that's why they're so charming and they work so well together and have such great chemistry is because they don't know. Neither of them really knows what they're doing. They're just trying their best. They're trying to one-up each other in these scenarios. And their immaturity just really shines through and creates this sense of heightened uh, hyper-realism that I think works really well as a satire. Um, it, it's interesting to hear you you say this
3: stuff because I just... I did not find these characters compelling. Um, and, and I think because of that, I did not find myself digging much deeper into the... The thematic material, and I think for me it all begins with the plot. And I think this is where I take the biggest issue as it relates mm-hmm. to the characters and the and the sort of entryway into theme and its discussion on class or gender, depending on how you read it. I just think that the film does not give me a reason to care about um, Clark Gable getting a story, and I don't think it gives me a reason to care about Claudette getting back to. The pilot wesley not
1: not what's his name not wesley's king, king wesley. wesley king wesley
2: certainly not wesley snipes <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> also um, i i must correct everyone uh her, the character's name is ellie the mm-hmm. actress's yeah. name is claudette yeah yeah uh, well. yes i know we've been using them yeah.
2: interchangeably and i think we yeah, usually yeah. do that and, like yeah, in the part funny. we definitely were like matt and leo so
1: oh that's fair yeah
3: uh I just think that the film wants you to operate on a very shallow characterization for both. And I I have to say, Tucker, I do read these characters as shallow. Because ultimately, we get this scene in the phone booth with, with Clark Gable where he quits his job. Under what pretenses he quits his no, job?
2: No, he does not. He's fired and then he pretends that he quit and... And there's that layer of irony on top of that sure but but under like under what circumstances does that
3: really matter is he, he we learn he's starting to run out of money but okay he's fired he quits it happens he's trying to get a story to get back in but that's basically all we get out of him out of Claudette she wants to get back to Wesley but we know nothing about Wesley we we just see that she jumps off of a boat, which would suggest to me from the beginning that she is more autonomous and independent, but then she isn't. And okay, sure, I like that interplay. I love the scenes about, you know, him teaching her how to dunk a donut or, or things. I think their relationship, the fact that their two storylines put them on this intersecting path leads to good moments, but I just don't think that the film does enough to build up either of them for me to care. Maybe if we spend more time in the newsroom, maybe if we learned a little bit more about Wesley, I would be more invested in those narratives. But because I wasn't and because it was honestly very clear to me from the beginning of the film that they were going to, yeah, they were going to fall in love. Mm -hmm. I I knew where the plot was going, but I didn't feel like I had any investment in the plot not reaching that natural conclusion. I didn't Mm -hmm. really care if... If the story got told, I didn't really care if she got back to Wesley, because ultimately what was coming in the end was the Hollywood ending, and what was and how we were going to get there was just how we were going to get there. Because I just don't think that any of the individual character plot lines are those B-tier characters that are essential to understanding why the newspaper matters to Clark or why Wesley matters. None of that really hit for me. It all felt very surface level, and it didn't give me enough time to really latch on to these plot elements and, in turn, the characters.
0: Abram, you bring up an interesting point about the beginning and about how much we know about the characters because normally I am of the opinion that it's good to get into your story as late as possible. The sooner you the, the farther up you can push like the beginning of the film in your like story timeline, usually that works out for the best. But I think in this case, I I do suffer from the film just kind of like hits me with these couple disconnected scenes like right off of the right off the bat at the beginning, uh, and I'm kind of I I like know what's going on, but I because it gives me so little at the beginning, I'm still lost. As we're like in and as we get into the actual meat of the story with them meeting on the bus, and so I'm just like I want more, but then I'm like, oh, but maybe we could just like meet on the bus and we could learn this elsewise. I find that the the beginning of our characters is. Not even weak. I just—I don't think there's, like, anything there to really work with. And so all of the things I learn about them is through the progression of the story, which— Yeah. Say what you will. I mean, good work—good job on making a very compelling second act, but at the expense of there being almost no first act in this film. It just starts, and you're in, without a huge amount of characterization. But— I think my— p- Once we get to the flip, where where I, I'm like, okay, they're going to fall in love. And I still know they're going to fall in love the entire time. It's It's a movie— when that flip happens and, oh, she's gone back and she is going to marry King Wesley, that's where I was like, oh, I'm interested again. I I actually do care now because it isn't, it isn't as easy as it just seemed like it would be. I yeah, agree I, with Timo on that point for sure. I think that the
3: end of the film for me is when the plot complicated itself in a way that I enjoyed. We got more of a dynamic between... Uh, Claudette and the and the father and Wesley, and then we also get a little bit more of uh, Clark Gable going back to the newspaper, and mm-hmm. we see him play up that kind of oh you know I was just kidding about this whole romance that I have with 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 this girl, but my problem is it's not at, until the end of the film that we really build that kind of tension that motivated me to care. Because at the end, there's this question of miscommunication and is the romance actually going to go through and who is lying, whose feelings are actually going to be realized. But you contextualize that against the fact that the plot of this film essentially is is happening in the midst of a manhunt. But I never really feel that tension. We feel the tension in the scene when they come in and they are pretending to be a married couple, which I agree is a fantastic scene but and, and getting shapely off the trail. But... There's actually not a whole lot of time spent giving much weight or tension to things that happen. Even, I mean, Clark Gable, for for a comedy beat, beats up a guy, ties him to a tree, and steals his car. Right? With how true <laughs> that is, we don't exactly know. But it would just take it at face value. Clearly, he's been injured. He was in a fight. That is not his car. That there's no real tension felt there, and I just think that there's a there's a lack of. Of of a pushing force on these characters to reach their goal. That lack of urgency to me again hurt the fact that we're we're beginning this story without really having a way to latch onto the characters, and I don't think that we felt that momentum of this manhunt
1: behind them as the plot unfolds until the very end. I think. I think what's interesting is uh, you 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 may have a point. You may have a, a foot to stand on there, Abram. But I think I mean I don't I. Th- this is. I feel like the movie is less about like the manhunt and the the chase to go find these two than it is about the two of them, the chemistry that they have, the relationship yeah. that they build. You know, there, there's a reason that we don't need to cut back to the police. You know, finding clues and tracking them down and stuff, because that's ultimately not what the movie is about. This is like a romantic comedy in all intents and for all intensive purposes. And um, on those merits, I think it I think it largely works uh, for me. I mean, you guys talked, you guys said that, you know, personal preference, you did find the, the characters of the actors uh, that compelling. But I, you know, I, I think by and large, it operates more as that romantic comedy, which is why um I do have a bit of an issue with, like, when I said the ending, I didn't mean, like, you know, the third act as a whole or whatever. I was more talking specifically about, like, the last... 10 15 minutes of this movie where um Ellie goes back to or she goes to be with King Wesley um and Peters get married uh, uh, yeah she's about to get married Peter's sort of he's he's back to being a, this down on his luck journalist and they're split up but we don't spend a lot of time with either one of them in like the closing minutes of this film until they get back together when Ellie runs away uh she becomes a runaway bride and meets up with uh, Peter again. There's like this chunk of the film where the energy the you know the sort of that pizzazz the whole the pace that the whole film has just completely stops and we're in like boardrooms and offices with uh, the newspaper editor and the rich Wall Street dad and stuff like that where I'm like okay this is like we're we're rounding out this film and we're spending time with characters that we got fleeting minutes with and I don't care about so why are we doing this? that that's like my biggest complaint with this movie i
2: I do think it's interesting i think there's sort of a a middle ground between the issues that abram has with the film lacking and what you feel the film is lacking because i do think there actually is the film supporting itself on both sides i think you just need to sort of mesh those two a little bit better because when you get those extra character moments for the supporting cast at the end i do think that's what abram was lacking that's the fleshing out of the rest of the world and the characters and why you should care about uh about Clark's character being a newspaper man at all and and uh writing this for the money so he can go back to the hotel and and uh get Claudette Colbert's character and go off and lit off, live on the island story that they were talking about and Claudette I think uh not not giving enough credit from you guys of the the origins of her character being so suppressed by her life and having this one moment that is not really touched upon enough but I think is, is there is that she is so headstrong and she is so looking for an out out of her previously established life that she stumbled into the car of a guy and now she's going to marry him. And, and she, so she doesn't really care about this guy and she's just using it as an out and to push back against her father. And you, I think you see that as she sort of becomes uh, to comes to realize how ridiculous this goal is to ditch her dad, who can, of course, track her down, and make it all the way across the fucking country without a dollar in her pocket. Like, all of this is is so ridiculous, and I think you see those layers be peeled away, where it starts off as, as I feel that these are just, you know, you know, they're basic rom- rom-com characters, but as you learn more about Ellie's past, and the fact that she's basically just marrying, marrying King Wesley as an out from her previous life, and there's that conflict with her father, and how she doesn't really actually care about King Wesley... I think you are able to get enough from her character to where where Abrams' side of of the problem uh, with the movie is is supported. I do think that there is support on both of those sides. I think you just need to read a little bit more into it.
0: I don't really I, know how much of the the of of Ellie's thoughts on King Wesley were made clear to me at the beginning. I was like, oh, she's marrying this. From no, certainly not understood. at the beginning. Certainly not at the beginning. Okay, yeah. So
2: yeah. it's revealed like over halfway through where she's like, yeah, I had this one moment where I went shopping and the guys were chasing me and I dived out of the window and into a car and that car was King Wesley's car. And it's clear that they have not known each other very long. This is just her being headstrong and trying to get out of her previous life. And, and I think that's where you sort of, again, get the peeling off of the character of, oh, actually this is behind this. this. There is this element to the character that I wasn't aware of before. I okay. just, I
3: think for me, I actually, Timo, I, I agree with you. I think that there's kind of a two pronged issue here. First of all, I think that the film just backloads this information too much. I, I think that by the times that these complications of the characters, as Tucker talk, are, are talking about, are un- unveiled to you, they've already lost me. If I wasn't compelled by the character at the beginning, it becomes harder and harder for me as a viewer to become compelled by the characters as that film goes on. At a certain point, you didn't catch me. And it's going to be harder and harder to, to do that a second time. And I think part of my issue with that is that a lot of this stuff that we're talking about happens through expository dialogue exchanges that ultimately feel like they exist in the background. I like what you're saying, Tucker, about this relationship with King Wesley starting out from a, from a false premise. But I didn't really get the sense until maybe the very end of the film that that is not what she wanted. It seemed like that spontaneity was what she wanted and... If the film is about constantly challenging my expectations, I just think it does it through both too late and through a, such a, a simple story means of just hey we're sitting in the hotel room here or there and having these conversations and by the time we do it's just too late in my opinion.
1: Personally, what I want is is a, is a prequel series about King Wesley and his journey to make that uh that the plane helicopter thing that he that rides into his wild. own wedding on.
2: That's like, what an entrance. Coming in on a freaking <laughs> copter landing on the field like five feet away from people and a, climbing in out a... in his top hat and coattails. Oh, ho, ho, I'm ready for my wedding. What a oh, guy. He, where's the beautiful bride? <laughs> but I do think that the film actually works best in those ridiculous over-the-top moments and also uh, I I think balanced by the sort of smaller character moments with with side characters. I think this this film has a phenomenal cast of side characters. Whether that's Shapely, and the amount of times that he shows up in every moment, mm. every moment that he has on screen, you're just like, oh, man, I hate this fella. But he's so fucking funny. Or or the guy that picks them up when they're hitchhiking. He's just yodeling his heart out. And it's like <laughs> these characters all have a an element of ridiculousness to them. But I think it plays off of the ridiculousness of the main characters to give you sort of this widespread reach of all these people across America living their lives Facing the challenges of depression and no one really having any money and having to ride this bus across. I think one of the the elements of this film that is strongest and why it's remembered so fondly is it represents the camaraderie and freedom of America and traveling and meeting people in different cultures and all this stuff. Because this film takes place a lot on a bus and a lot in hotel rooms, but they're never the same bus or the same hotel rooms. They're always traveling somewhere else through through the mud or the straw or having to find their ways through these situations that give you a lot of variety and gives you a, a whole scope of American culture. And I think that that's really important. And one of the strongest aspects of this film, thematically in the background, is the freedom and camaraderie of Depression-era America.
1: Mm. Talk Tur- I, I, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's a really interesting way to look at this film, you know, as a, as a film that came out in 1934 uh and i i just want to say because the, they're not quite hotel rooms they're in they i don't know what you would even call them They're like them. half motels i do like know.
0: yeah it's like a kind like, motel they call them like road r-
1: camps it's like an rv park but without rvs <laughs> yeah it's just yeah, a it bunch park. of people living in like tiny it's a little... room park yeah <laughs> tiny little like shacks and then they have to like shower in the same building and stuff like that it's a it's a really interesting like lens into 1930s like middle america
0: yeah i mean mm. Tucker, you were talking about the the side characters and i agree i think that what brings me into the film the most is the characters is our two main characters and then all the side characters coming together. And also I do agree that the film is fairly inventive in its situations and it's the way that it moves its characters around because it is them just traveling from Florida to New York the entire way. Um, Mm. but the way that it uses, you know, they have to sleep outside or they get stuck in the mud or we're in two different road camps in the little, in the, in the cottages, as they call them, um, is, is, Allows there to be setups for situational comedy, like the walls of Jericho, you know. Oh, the, the oh yeah, which, yeah, yeah. which, as a, as a production code, uh, time enjoyer, and seeing what the production code, how movies get around it, when mm-hmm. the walls of Jericho come down, you know, something happens.
1: Oh behind... boy, howdy, they be bonin They they truly truly do now. And that apparently that being the... like the
0: last shot of the film. Yes, yeah. last shot of the
1: film. Um, uh, I I ending do... on
0: a on a. Hardy note you know what i'm saying boys. Uh,
1: I, I suppose so and uh, the, the, the walls of bang, jericho perhaps. thing uh, the, the walls of jericho thing was apparently added because uh and there, i'd like i didn't get into any trivia yet in this episode i but uh there's just a lot of dysfunction and like the actors not wanting to do this movie like at all behind the yeah. scenes here Claudette colbert was like i'm not i'm not like undressing on screen." And so they they put the walls of Jericho thing in the script, and uh, if I may, can I, can I? I'll just use that to segue into the sort of uh, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert behind the scenes stuff here. So Clark Gable and. Tucker knows a lot more about like the star system back in the 1930s than I do, but he was an MGM star at the time. This is a, this is a Columbia movie. He was an MGM star. They, this they is had a
2: Columbia picture. Yes. The end, as it says, at the final frame of the film.
1: <laughs> but he was loaned out to this movie as a, as punishment for uh, having an affair with Joan Crawford, another famous uh, actress of the time. So they basically punished him by loaning him out to Columbia. For Columbia this movie.
2: being a, a sort of Poverty Row, low-class yeah.
1: uh, studio at the time. Right. They're like, they're like, work at this shitty place as pennants, you screwball. Yes. Uh, and he uh, came so on was, to set drunk and all this crap. He He, came, he had his initial meeting with uh, Frank Capra drunk, l- drunk off his ass, and he's, he's angry and belligerent. Uh, he came on to set the first day, and apparently he said, grimly, let's get this over with. Uh, Claudette Colbert only signed on to the film because... Uh, Frank Capra promised to double her uh, initial salary and to get shooting done within four weeks. Uh, She, when they wrapped filming, she apparently told one of her friends, I just finished making the worst picture I've ever made, and she was so confident in the fact that she would not win Best Actress for this, even after she'd been nominated, that she, she did not show up to the ceremony. She instead decided to go on a train trip the night of the Oscar ceremony. They had to stop her at the train station and say you're winning best actress we need to get you over to the to the ceremony to accept the award so yeah there's just a lot of like very strange like both of the actors hated this the the script was being shopped around and like a bunch of other uh, famous actors of the time read it and said it was the worst thing they've ever read and then it went on to uh to sweep the oscars
2: yeah, huh. it's one of the it's one of the few movies. I don't know if you have the exact uh, wins and noms here, but it's one of the fr- few movies to to
1: win uh, all of the big five. Yes, the one of three, one of three. Uh, the other is being. Uh, I think we talked about this when we did Sound of the one Lambs. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Silent, The Silence of the Lambs, and It Happened One Night are the only movies to win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, mm-hmm. and one of the screenplay awards. This would have been uh, adapted screenplay. Mm -hmm. And And that was from a short story called Night Bus, I believe. And it was nominated for nothing else. It won 100% of the Oscars it was nominated for. Just like Grand Hotel. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Just like Grand Hotel. Which was nominated for one and won one. A little more uh, impressive than Grand Hotel, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: It's so interesting that you mentioned all of that about the actors because I, I do believe that Clark Gable and Claudette... What I can't remember her last name this Colbert. Is, Colbert. Col- Col- yeah. Why is this so difficult for me? As we're saying, it's a, it's, it's like an alliterative name. Just say it. Claudette Colbert and Clark uh-huh. Gable are my favorite parts of the film. I think. I think mm-hmm. the way so, that yeah. they're they're on together. I think they're cute as a romantic couple. Um, and really, what was inspiring me to finish because I don't really, you know, the boring threshold doesn't exist any longer. We've abolished it. Um, but. <gasps> in in my mind i there was just not enough going for the film beyond these two characters to really drag me into it um, until like we got to that last act the last switch around um, just the the, the the kind of bare romance story didn't exactly have maybe the b plot to pull me in and really and and grab me i guess
2: hmm. yeah
0: you wanted your nuts grabbed so bad
2: but this movie <laughs> just refused to grab them it i did. feel
1: I feel that we're winding down, and I'd like to do one last piece of trivia that is very interesting that Tucker actually told me one? about before it's I read one. it. Yes. Uh, Tucker, would you like to handle it since you, you clued me into this? Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: you might have more specific terminology, but um, mm-hmm. from what I know is one of the classic elements of this film is one of the first times that you uh, that was shown on screen a man undressing almost fully, I mean, he's in his slacks, but he's mm-hmm. removing all the stuff, and Another great moment of comedy, by the way. Oh he's yeah, like, I he's Take like, "Take off the tie first, and uh-huh. oh, you you think the pants would come next, but I do my shoes." First the left, then the right. That's <laughs> so funny. Um, but that sequence uh, was difficult, as as Tanner informed me, to shoot because uh, um, Clark Gable was having trouble taking off his shirt, his his jacket, his shirt, and his undershirt. So they just said, "Screw it." Give her the undershirt. It'll make it easier. It'll make the scene quicker. Whatever. It's just more efficient. Who's uh, gonna and be- notice? Yeah, who's gonna notice? Well, apparently, fucking everyone. Because when you see Clark, when you see Clark Gable undress on screen, Hollywood's golden boy, and he doesn't have an undershirt on, the masses of male America suddenly denounce the undershirt. Undershirt sales don't go downhill. Clement, yes. And and the production or the companies that produce undershirts try to sue Columbia for, like, ruining Defamation, their business.
1: I guess. <laughs> Which I, I don't, don't know. think worked. because <laughs> no, it's, I, I don't mean,
2: think so. They just changed cultural trends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God.
0: Wow. Okay. Crazy. Yeah, That's, that, it,
1: it's so fucking weird. A very strange little story about this film. Say what you will about the power of art. Mm-hmm. Now, can
3: oh. I do something crazy? Oh, what are we doing? Because as we were recording here, uh-huh. we got... Word from the fifth member of Backlog Banter,
2: <gasps> oh, with no.
3: his thoughts on Titanic, and I have pulled them up. Wow! If okay. we're done, if we're if we're wrapping up, getting ready to give the score, I think we should circle back around for a second and talk to everybody. John Tour Eleven, a live update, a live update here on Quest for the best C-
1: coming from the field. <laughs> Abram Buner from Backlog Banter, hold the presses. John Tour
3: Eleven says on Titanic. So I saw this when it came out. It was the most amazing film God, I had we're so ever young. seen. The production of this was just fantastic. However, the movie doesn't work on rewatch for me. The flaws mm. are painfully obvious. The script is a total shipwreck, literally, with one-dimensional one, directional, one dimensional characters, poor Billy Zane, and a sappy romance Aww. story. And what a waste of Kathy Bates, who didn't have a cock-a-doodle... A doodle a cock a duty thing to do. The oh, iceberg think- ends up being... Yeah. I think that's
1: a little Kathy Bates reference. I forget uh-huh. what movie she says that in, but it, it's it's a famous, like, Kathy Bates line in a movie.
3: Well, Tanner, the iceberg here ends up being the best actor in the movie. Yes, this well, hey. film was around for a long time. So was that damn Celine Dion song that you heard everywhere for, like, forever <laughs> driving everybody crazy. Sorry, <laughs> is, this is only a 6 out of 10 for me now, but it sure was a 10 back then.
1: Yeah. I, I, that's the one thing I did hear, like doing research on uh, on Titanic, was that everyone was sick of that Celine Dion song because it was apparently just everywhere all the time. Kind of like
2: Shallows. Remember how Shallow was on the I do radio remember Shallow.
1: Shallows. It was our uh, My Heart Will Go On. Yeah. Except for no one gives a shit about a star Born anymore. Why are we talking uh, about Titanic on this? On the what it happened one night episode?
0: Okay, before we rank it, I just want to I just want to give a little barometer for ranking. Uh, we hmm. have also reviewed a Clark Gable Best Picture winner from ah. the same 30s. Clark Gable is he better in this or is he better in Mutiny on the Bounty? Hmm.
1: He's certainly Bounty. given
2: he's certainly given a more dr- dr- more drama to do in, in Mutiny on the Bounty. I do I think agree. that there is a surprising range here from what this genre, this genre, or this movie in the genre that it is, of the screwball comedy, of rom-com. He plays the really brash masculine guy, the ridiculous over top comedy guy, the fast quipping guy, and the surprising amount of depth and like unveiling his heart guy really well. I think that this is sort of the best you can get from a male character of this genre. But he's—it's nowhere near as interesting as *Mutiny on the Bounty* in terms of um, the craziness that he goes through in that film.
1: See, I would—I would say that uh, if I was going to go back and you know rewatch the best moments of Clark Gable, I would probably rewatch his his comedic timing in this versus that dramatic. Oh yeah! Stuff and, wow, that's a great response.
2: Why didn't I think of that?
1: <laughs> all right, you got me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, really so fucking funny. Should we score this movie? I already did. Whoa, oh, my man, and Abram we're is ahead. All, we're all lacking today, boys. Okay, I got mine in. Oh,
0: what am I going to put? What am I going to put? Uh, this what is am what gonna you play? decide
2: throughout the course of
0: the episode, Timo. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, if it... I, I've been thinking, I've been modifying, I've been accommodating my score. <gasps> I've got mine ready. Okay. Three, ready?
1: two, one. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? What do we got?
0: Oh, we've run the gamut, boys. A big big spread. A big spread indeed. Well, the average score, we'll hit that first because that tells us where it's going to go is 7.4. And so if we look on the list, 7.4 is going to slot it in between No Tie, Gandhi, and The Deer Hunter, um, Mm -hmm. giving it place number 36. In similar company. In similar company. Um, Mm -hmm. But (laughs) what's most interesting about the ranking is not the final placement, but the individual scores. Starting at the top, Tucker gave it a 9.2, Tanner gave it an 8.6, I gave it a 6.9, and Abram gave it a 4.9. So all well over a five point spread there for this film. Um, Mm -hmm. But the way averages work out is it ends up somewhere in the middle. Just, Just about in the middle, just right.
1: Just right. You know, what, what What number was that again, Timo, if you can so run that by four, me again? Can't, can't or no, the, the the placement, the placement.
0: Place number 36 on ah, okay. the list out of Reasonable. 54. So oh. it actually, it just because we're talking about Mutiny and the Bounty, which was the year afterwards, that's why I, I bring it up, um, ah. got a, a 7.9 uh, and was the reason I asked, that was my touchstone for thinking about how to rank this film because mm. I found them to be similar, but I can't, Really believe I'm going to say this, but I think I enjoyed Mutiny on the Bounty more.
1: Wow. I think it, I, I think Did it, you give that a good score. It's been a while since we've had such a such a spread in terms of scores. We've been we've been fairly united.
0: Oh, uh, that's recently. right. You were
1: you were low on Mutiny on the Bounty. I thought Mutiny was great. I yeah. think yeah, Mutiny is significantly better than this, personally.
3: Okay. I suppose if I were to give my final thoughts on the matter, sure. uh clocking in on the very low end of the spectrum. I I think I've been I've been trying to exercise the full 10 points on these scales more often as people yeah. watching our analogous Marvel show uh, will know I've been <laughs> I've been you know exploring the low end of the spectrum when I talk about those films but in the case here again we're working comparatively and so when I think of a five I think of that's the baseline best picture and for me I think that it, this film just falls a little bit below that just a hair I think that it had it when we think of what a best picture does it does a lot of that great acting i think a great conceit a really solidly written script there is a lot here that is boom yeah i understand why this one best picture entirely but for me i just think that it does not extract nearly all of what it could out of its material i found the 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 characters in the plot were just not executed in a way that I found compelling in light of all these great ideas they had there. And the structure of the film in terms of how it's doling out information didn't really help me either. And as soon as that first domino fell of the characters not quite working and the plot didn't quite work, and because of that, I just did not find... I never found an entry point into this sort of thematic material as we were talking about. While I see some of it and disagree that some of it might even be there, I just the film did not invite me to get to that level with it it felt like yep here's a 30s golden age of hollywood film and when we contextualize that against the sort of the the risks that the best best picture oscars take it's just nowhere near that for me mm.
0: Well, yeah. Well, for me, I think about you know we, we talked. I think we've talked enough about about story and characters and theme and and throwing in a little another area on there um, of just filmmaking technique. I found that there are other films from this era, particularly All Quiet on the Western Front, that just do the filmmaking a little better. Um, it's hard to comment on like the actual visual fidelity because all of every version of this that I can find online is not been restored. It is, you know, mm-hmm. someone scanned a print from the 30s probably or, or maybe a reprint from the 70s or something. And so the quality isn't great and the sound, the, the fidelity of the sound isn't all there. And it's not the fault of the movie. It's because it's old. Um, well, Mr. Mister Tucker with his DVD there uh, is going to beg to differ. But in the, I, uh-huh. In in trying to find it online, see on the side, <laughs> it it Not didn't DVD. particularly like strike a huge chord with me in the way that both All Quiet on the Western Front and Mutiny on the Bounty did in like the filmmaking. This 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 had the story and the you know the characters to entertain, but it didn't have the technique to like wow me as mm. those films did.
1: Um, I would say if I, I have a little bone to pick with whoever did the restoration on this because it looks good for the most part but there are just some shots in that Criterion version that Tucker just showed off over there that are just a little just are overexposed like the whites are just way too shiny and bright but at the same time there are some shots that look great like that uh, when they have the argument about how to piggyback and who's the best piggybacker and if if that's piggybacking is correct and that the moonlight is shining off the the river that they're walking through, that's beautiful. And um, I think that sort of reflects uh, my sort of thoughts on this film as well. The the negatives I have are sort of uh, in the moment, in fleeting, and uh, largely what uh, I think this film is, and what I will remember about it largely, is just those very nice, very human, very intimate moments between uh, two great actors, two staples of the era... And uh, I think this I think this cements this film as a staple of the era as well. You know, the, the birth of the screwball comedy, the uh, one of the one of the great classic romantic comedies. I think it checks all these boxes very, very well. I think what this film does is is different
2: for best picture winners, admittedly. But I think is very important is is meet that bar of accessibility of just being crowd-pleasing film and of course we've we've gotten the sort of crowd-pleasing ones that everyone can go see in the blockbusters like your science of limbs or titanic but in terms of something way older and and obviously from a, a different tonal perspective i think this film is very accessible very watchable to anyone especially um it holding up over time and the humor still hitting you know hit hit or miss it seems hitting more often than it misses and also having that representation of its era and the themes that were important there, which is the avoiding of sex but still trying to get a little bit in there mm-hmm. or representing Depression-era camaraderie like the guides sit on the bus singing the song together. You get all this stuff and and the ideas of of travel and, and freedom and trying to break free of what's pushing you down. There is a lot of thematic material here that does make this film really interesting to dig into. It may, I feel it may seem like a simple romantic comedy on the surface. But when you look into Frank Capra's history and you look into the ways that his filmography sort of um, explore the themes of American life in that era, I think this is a very important subsect of that. And it really makes sense to me that this one best picture and puts it up with the rest of the great best pictures in my opinion, because it does similar things, but very differently. And and I think it, it works very well for that, carried by phenomenal actors Playing really interesting characters in a really fun scenario with some of the best like snappy dialogue, situational comedy that we've seen so far. I I think this is one of the the best best picture winners, and uh, I'm I'm happy to say that this is not this review is not what cements it in film history because this film has been cemented in film history uh, since uh, Uh, 1934. Oh, because this is just one of. One of those great films, one of those classic of, American films.
0: One of the movies of all time. It's one of the movies, most certainly. I think we can all agree on that here on Backlog Banter. I do want to Shh. note that um, had I seen this with an audience or even probably just with Tucker, would have the helped, um, could could have resulted in a larger point swing. Because mm. I I did find the comedy humorous, but it didn't make me like die laughing as I kind of feel like the... the the audience was at the Tanner Dykstra at the mm. the Dykstra uh, <laughs> Hazel household uh, yeah. When they watched it yesterday, so if I get the chance to watch it again I think I will take it as long as it's in a theater or with mm. the dude right below me There you go Your roommate you mean not like <laughs> Satan down in hell. No, I mean I mean <laughs> you, you
2: You, you You are below, below him on the screen oh.
1: uh, I thought you meant physically him. Should we get to the next movie of all time? Let's get to the next
0: movie of all time by spinning. Oh that Oso oh Illustrious spin wheel. We're not <sighs> we're not trying to get stuck in the mud here. This these wheels no. are going to keep on spinning. Oh yeah. All right, let's let's speak our dreams into reality today, boys. I want
2: either A Man for All Seasons, All the King's Men or Around the World in 80 Days. Mm. Why? That's for me to I,
1: know and you to not know. I took a quick look. We are most likely, statistically, to get a film from the 2010s or the 1940s. We have five remaining from the 2010s and six remaining from the 1940s. I think
3: we should say very quickly, because I think Tucker is on his dumb Oscars hunt, and he's looking Uh for movies that he wants to watch anyway. To that point, if you want to join Tucker on this journey, we have a a Discord (gasps) server, and just today... Tucker added a new channel there, which is which is called Oscar Nerds. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you made it this far, you are an Oscar nerd, and we're speaking mainly to you, John Tor 11. You're in the comments section. Get even further into our hearts in the Discord server. Yes. But we want all of you, anybody who wants to join, come talk to us about Oscars or talk yeah. to me about Halo.
2: Come yeah, talk that, to me actually. about the three faces of Eve, the piano, the miracle worker, the, Philadelphia Spin the Wheel. Zeta <laughs> Halo. Spin the wheel, that
1: wheel is wheel, spinning. Wheel, what's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it unreal? We wheel. Real, real. What is your deal?
0: And the number is eleven. So Tanner, oh, you were you were close on that twenty tens prediction. Yeah. I think we're going to be just a little bit farther in the past. Is it in uh, the nineties? Uh, Am I yes. correct with that? You're awesome. awesome. You're Ooh. correctly Ooh. analyzing
2: numerical values here, mm, landing mm. us squarely in nineteen ninety six. Mm, uh mm. in a film that is not particularly. Important, I mean, it did win best picture, but I think that's really the only thing he's going for it. Though mm. it does have Colin Firth in it, it does have a Willem Defoe in it, Juliet what? Binoche, Ralph Fine, Rafe Fines, excuse me, uh, directed by Anthony Mingella. We're gonna be watching The English Patient, the- which is uh, oh. notoriously oh. pretty fucking oh. lame, but man. Hey, it's been a while since we've had, like, a lame one. Like, yeah. maybe this didn't hit for you, Abram, but there's, like, there's a charm here. I, yeah. It's been a while since we've had a lame one. I think we deserve we, one.
1: We haven't gotten a an Out of Africa ripoff in a while, which is ah. basically all I know about this film, is, like, a modern Out of Africa.
3: At the close of World War II, a young nurse tends to a badly burned plane crash victim. His past is shown in flashbacks, revealing an involvement in a fateful love affair. Uh, Abram, how long is this movie, please? Tanner, that's a great question, and I'm gonna vamp as my page loads. The, it's I got two good. hours and
2: 42
0: minutes. Oh, Holy fuck. Oh, man. <laughs> you know what? Oh, the groans every time we get a long one. It just maybe, happens.
1: Maybe, well, maybe we're being too harsh on it. Maybe this is a great movie. And Could I'll I'll, tr- I'll try to clear my mind of all well, actually, the, of all the negative. It has a
2: it has a three point five average on Letterbox. That's okay. that's uh, the good line that Tanner and I have sort of decided. Yeah, but we okay. but we know that people he has Letterboxed are brain dead. This is true. This is it's true. true. And, and in fact, a large percentage of my friend group.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if uh, you uh, yourself are this... brain
0: dead, follow at <gasps> Backlog Banter on Letterbox. We're throwing Absolutely. in all the pitches if, today. If you're
1: brain dead. <laughs> Oh, no, we wouldn't say that of our viewers, would we, fellas? Oh, no, we wouldn't. We well, actually have. say in the channel trailer. Yeah, oh, it is. Well, don't watch that. Viewers, don't watch that. Never mind that.
0: We will be talking about the English patient. Will it be uh, a slog or boring, or is it an unexpected gem in the sand of the mm-hmm. desert? We're going to find out next week on the quest for the bestest. Movie? It is a desert movie. I hate oh, sand.
2: A, a, to chart the vast expanses of the Satara Desert. Indeed, so, it is a tar I read, desert. I read the <laughs> I Google
0: description gonna. and pulled that this was a desert movie mm. who knows if this movie will have desert power I don't Ooh. know we're going to figure it out on next episode <laughs> of the quest for the bestest thank you guys for, matter for joining of Dune me Dune references and Star Wars 1 and 3 references are going to be off the charts oh yeah let's get into it but next time until then peace